Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. It's really wonderful uh, for all of you to join us. Thank you for doing so. I'm Warren Kinghorn, the co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. I want to, again, welcome you here. TMC exists to connect the world of healthcare to the world of Christian faith and practice. And if any of you are interested in studying with us, we'd love to be in further conversation with you about that. And without further uh, delay, it's my real pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's seminar, Dr. Kristen Collier of the University of Michigan. Dr. Collier is clinical associate professor at the University of Michigan Medical School. Uh, she also is the director of the University of Michigan Medical School Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion, which has a lot of common uh, themes and threads to the work of our Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. Uh, Dr. Collier did her undergraduate degree, her uh, MD and also her residency training at the University of Michigan, where she stayed on faculty. So I think she probably has pretty determined convictions on the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry. And uh, she's also been a collaborator uh, in many ways of our work in TMC for years. And uh, we're just incredibly pleased to welcome her to present at our seminar on the title of uh, Theology of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Collier. Hi, friends. Warren, can you hear me okay? Yes, right. thanks. Good to see everybody. See so many um, old friends and current friends on the screen. Greetings from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I actually just gave an all school assembly at the Portsmouth Abbey boarding school to a group of um, high school students. And so I'm wearing red because that's the color of the school here, not because I am a fan of the Ohio State, but good to see everybody. Um, please excuse me while I share my screen here and we'll go ahead and get started. All right. Again, thanks so much to CJ and Pfeiffer and Warren for inviting me to speak with y'all today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and uh, my talk, as Dr. Kinghorst said, is a theology of medicine. I don't have any disclosures. So my talk today is on what it means to have a theology of medicine. If you don't like the term theology of medicine, that's totally fine. Maybe you prefer the term of philosophy of medicine. My thesis is the same. For us to be good doctors or good nurses, good respiratory therapists, we need not just good technical skills, not just knowledge, but wisdom. Remembering that philosophy literally translated means a love of wisdom. And for Christians in particular, our wisdom should be based on truth. And for us, we believe truth is a person, Jesus Christ. So in my talk, my goal is to have us reflect upon the importance of having wisdom to guide our medicine and how the humanities in particular are necessary for this to be well-informed because biomedical science, as you know, by itself cannot properly inform our philosophy or theology of medicine. And remember when I'm talking about the humanities, just for those of us that don't remember, the humanities broadly encompass theology, philosophy, religion, and the like. My disclaimer, I guess also is I'm gonna be speaking from the only perspective I know, which is my own as a, as a Christian person. So please forgive me in advance if I say something that causes you to have some tension or that we have, will have points I'm sure of disagreement that I would love to explore in the Q&A. So during our time together today, hopefully I'll show you that having a theology and medicine can be helpful as you go through this career, which is so hard because this affects how you see your patients, the type of setting you might wanna practice in 
and maybe what you want to choose to advocate for or research or teach about or lecture on. And we're going to discuss that the risks of having a philosophy of medicine that is distinctly Christian um, has, you know, are true. There, there are risks to that. And I want to emphasize that for maybe our students in the audience, not only can you bring your faith to bear in the practice of medicine, but I'm going to argue that you should, as our faith has actually something radically countercultural and beautiful to say, especially for those of us who care about the equal and just treatment of all members of our human family. I also want to argue that if we lose a distinctly theological anthropological medicine focused on seeing the human beings we take care of as being made in the image of God, I fear that we're going to lose something about the very essence of actually what medicine is and should be. So because I said we need the humanities to be wise, let's start with an exploration of some works of literature and then lean into the humanities as we sort of get our brains flowing, because many of you maybe just came from a hard science class, so I just want to get our brains going. So this is a great essay. Many of you haven't probably seen it because it's in a smaller journal, which I also love called The New Atlantis. So this is an essay called The Scientist and the Poet. It's an essay written actually by an English professor, Paul A. Cantor in the journal The New Atlantis, which draws upon tensions between how scientists and poets see the world. He writes, quote, poets generally seem to be unsympathetic to science. They question its capacity to tell us the full truth about our world, end quote. This is a notion worth considering for medical doctors and leaders in healthcare. Why would the poets think that objective science would be less than revealing of the full truth? Aren't we the ones that have all the answers and the hard sciences? We have objective science, we have the facts, right? It's the poets that have their heads up in the clouds, right? I wonder what you would make of this. The piece then moves through excerpts of work from literature. From famous romantic poets, beginning with Goethe, who was both a poet and a scientist, and ends alarmingly actually with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So Cantor's critique of science through Frankenstein is that science is good, provided it is oriented towards the humane. So in Frankenstein, as many of you know, science becomes a victim of its own power over nature. And in the novel, the protagonist, Victor Frankenstein, tells of his dedication to science study of chemistry and natural philosophy at the university and its commitment to research. But in the course of practicing science, somehow the power of science escaped Victor's control. And Cantor concludes, the basic lesson of Frankenstein can teach us this. Science cannot tell us how to do something. Um, it can tell us how to do something, but it cannot tell us whether we should do it. And to explore that question, we really must step outside the narrow range of science's purely technical questions and look at the full human context and consequences of what we are doing. So what Cantor is saying here is meaningful, actually. Medicine as a practice of techno-science must be able to see beyond the scientific technical to its full human context. And though the novel Frankenstein, of course, is science fiction, its message is applicable to the possible pitfalls of modern medicine. So science indeed has something to learn from the novelist, the poet, the essayist, and the philosopher. Yet medicine has a really difficult time incorporating the humanities often, poetry, literature, history, philosophy, and the like. Why is this? Is there some unspoken rule that medicine can only draw upon the hard sciences? Cantor would likely conclude that the true fullness of medicine is found in the union between the humanities and the sciences. So philosophy requires medicine and its leaders to ask and answer a basic question. What is medicine for? 
science fails to even ask such a basic question because such a question is explored through the humanities, not through the sciences. But actually this question of what is medicine for, I believe is, and the answer to that question is paramount for the vocation of medicine to wrestle with if we are to properly guide medicine through this next century. So let's take another look at some uh, work of um, the humanities. Let's go back in time because the humanities love history to London on the 20th of May in the year 1934 to London's Sadler's Wells Theater. So The Rock by the great poet T.S. Eliot is making its debut. It's a time of great industrial and scientific progress in Europe, much like today, but the opening stanzas of the play arrest the listening audience with what has become lost in progress, quote, the eagle soars in the summit of heaven. The hunter with his dogs pursues his circuit. Oh, perpetual revolution of configured stars. Oh, perpetual recurrence of determined seasons. Oh, world of spring and autumn, birth and dying. The endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment brings knowledge of motion, but not of stillness. Knowledge of speech, but not of silence. Knowledge of words, but ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycle of heaven in 20 centuries brings us farther from God and nearer to the dust, end quote. So many of you recognize that science and industry are perpetually busy participating in the cycles of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, right, that Eliot talks about. But it's a tragic punchline to this progress, a paradox that arrests the modern sensibility in the closing stanzas of the poem. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Would we agree with this? that we've lost wisdom and life. So to illustrate what the consequences are of having lost wisdom and knowledge and the consequences of not having a view of the patient as a person and not just a patient as body, again, an informed anthropological view of the human being, I'd like to share a couple real life examples and stories with you. This is to help illustrate two things. One is that we know there are many various ways in which patients view the meaning of human life. And the same is true for doctors. And two, the view that doctors have and hold on human life have real consequences for real patients. And both examples are what can happen, I believe, if we don't keep the Imago Dei in the anthropology of medicine. And I hope these stories encourage you to keep the Imago Dei in the forefront of what you do um, as Christians. So this is a true story. I will change some details for privacy, but um, I was at a national meeting um, for a big society in my field. Um, of medicine maybe six years ago. And so I'm at dinner, a lot of people from my division go, and I'm sitting across from a leader at our institution who no, no longer is a leader at our institution, if this story scares you. Um, and so I'm chatting with this person and I'm like talking about the program on medicine and religion that I run. And he was like, do you know what you religious people do really well? I said, what, you know? And he's like, you recognize people's dignity. And I said, well, thanks. And he's like, do you know who else recognizes people's dignity really well? And I said, who? He said the VA. So at Ann Arbor, we actually have a VA hospital and the university hospital, like right down the street and the faculty are the same faculty. And I said, how is that? And he said, well, at the VA, when someone dies, there's like a pause. And so they, maybe you probably know this tradition. And so they, they pause to recognize the life that's been lost. 
And I said, well, that's really lovely. And I said, do you think that the people that die like a half mile down the road at the university hospital deserve to die in a different way? And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, why is that? And he said, because those patients are scum. All right. And I was like a couple of drinks in at this point. I was like, excuse me, they're what? And he said, they're scum. And I was like, what, why? And he said, well, you know, the patients at the VA, right? They've like put their lives on the line. They've like sacrificed of themselves. Like many of them have lost a limb, right? So he was showing me, right? That he believed that these people had like earned their dignity by like what they've done. And he said the people down the road like hadn't done that. And so, right, there's this, there's this idea that many people have that's really interesting when you ask patients or students or colleagues how they view the value of human life, but how many people actually have taken the locus of human value, not from being the type of very creature that we are, remember Homo sapiens, or Imago Dei, however you want to frame that, and actually put it into some kind of extrinsic confer dignity based on who you are, what your ability is, or what traits that you have, right? So I just kept asking him questions to hopefully like help him understand that this view is like entirely problematic. He just wasn't hearing it. And so I was like, I guess we just agree to disagree. Like later that night, like I'm texting all my friends about it. I was so upset, you know, that this is a leader at our place to see their patients as scum, right? Because you know that, that out of that philosophy or that view, right? Um, I'm sure, you know, decisions are made, right? And so people are like, why are doctors even talking about human dignity? And I was like, if we are not talking about the value of human life when we take care of like people, like I'm not sure like what else we're supposed to do. This is actually really, really important. So to give you a, like another real life example, like, well, that's just someone's views. Like your patients really get affected by these views. Does anyone know who this is? This is Michael Hickson. So Michael Hickson um, is a black man who um, maybe six years before this picture was taken had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and um, uh, was resuscitated, um, but had an anoxic brain injury as a result of his arrest. And so had significant physical and cognitive limitations. He was married, he had children. Um, and this picture was taken in summer of 2020 when Mr. Hickson developed COVID-19. And so he was hospitalized in a hospital in Texas and his wife, Melissa, actually um, audio tapes the physician about Mr. Hickson's care. And Mr. Hickson at the time was, Melissa noted, like not getting remdesivir, which was the standard of care at the time. And she was like, why is my husband not getting remdesivir? And the doctor says, it's because he has no quality of life. And she's like, well, why not? And he said, because he's not a walking and talking person. And Mr. Hickson didn't get the medication and he died, you know? So, I wonder, you know, for those of you that haven't heard about Michael Hickson, why haven't more of us heard about Michael Hickson? Is it because he's a black disabled man? Is it because actually a lot of the US population is like, yeah, disabled people, right? They don't have like, why wouldn't we sort of think about them the same way? Um, and it just shows, I think, a couple things. And that one is that we know from actually research that if you ask physicians, like, what do you think this person's quality of life is with that, even that term is very ableist. I'm thinking about a person with disability. The physicians time and time again will rate that person's, they think it's their quality of life much lower than if you ask the disabled person themselves. And when we have ableism and ageism, which I think is somewhat still baked into healthcare, um, real people's lives actually um, get lost by the views we have about the value of the person. So to give you more data to support that I'm not just making this up, this is a really interesting study actually that looked at um, how certain patients were resuscitated in emergency departments who came in with like an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So obviously you're not taking a social history and these patients come in, like you're just resuscitating them. But the interview was actually noticed that certain groups of patients were not resuscitated the same way. So who do you think the patients that were like, maybe like not resuscitated with a standard of care? The patients that the physicians view that they judged as like not having a value. So these were patients that, lo that looked maybe um, homeless or undomiciled, people that looked like they had um, addiction or substance use disorder, and like the elderly and other minoritized and marginalized patients. 
And so there are people that we as society will sort of claim as socially dead. Their dignity we find inconvenient. Just think about those folks whose dignity we find inconvenient and who we marginalize or depersonalize with our use of language or policies or whatever. In my opinion, they're the prenatal child, people with disability, um, people with um, uh, you know, dementia, people who have um, incarceration, um, migrants, the farm, farmer, the person that has maybe a, um, a status, um, an immigrant, refugee, right? People that whose maybe social status or work or other status or lack thereof, we find inconvenient and they get marginalized. And basically what this researcher showed was for social death actually predicts your cardiopulmonary death. Because the question I really want us to think about, and for those of us in medicine, those of us that speak and write and make hospital policy and um, influence public opinion is like, you know, who is included in our moral sphere of concern in healthcare and society? Who is included in the we? And what is this based upon? Who do you see as mattering? Who is included? Because if we do not root this value, in my opinion, in Imago Dei, it's gonna be rooted in what people can do. And it's increasingly framed in a way I think that mirrors our consumerist society. Your value in part is based on your ability to produce and consume. And so if we have this value-based system, many people are gonna be like left out of our circle of moral concern. So I think the antidote to this is the Imago Dei. And I just wanna like reclaim this idea that without the Imago Dei or having this view of inherent and viable dignity, um, I think we're at risk of a medical profession of um, you know, having uh, patients who are literally like left behind. So again, I'm, uh, just to sort of give you an example of maybe what this looks like in an individual person, not to pick on him, but you know, Zeke Emanuel, as you know, is a prominent internist. He's MDPH, he's a bioethicist at Penn, Dow Chair. And he wrote this piece that many of you know, which I think is um, really sort of insulting in um, several years ago now, The Atlantic said, why I hope to die at 75. And he makes this argument that like society, families, you, like everyone will just be better off, better off if nature takes this course swiftly. Why is that? He said, here's the truth. Living too long is a loss because it will leave you disabled, right? And you can't contribute to work, right? Again, thinking about the consumerist value we place on people. And he says, basically you're pathetic. Now, the fact that a prominent physician has this statement that's so grossly ableist and ageist, the fact that this wasn't completely like just royal, like, for in all fairness, I think the, the, the group that actually made the most fuss about this were our um, colleagues in geriatrics who were like, this is unacceptable. Um, but again, like Zeke Emanuel made a lot of, um, you know, it was in your journal of medicine, a lot of actually position statements about who should get resources if they were limited during COVID-19. And if you read that, um, like his view of the human person is like illustrated in those examples, because our view of the patient really matters and how we treat patients, make policies and write. So let's now turn to ethics as we think about shaping our theology of medicine. So we'll take care of patients in some system, I would assume, and that system has its own set of ethics. And we're faced with ethical issues in almost every encounter that we have. So how do you, if you're a Christian, navigate the ethical dilemmas in which we find ourselves? Who or what informs your ethics? How are you gonna be equipped to handle not only the ethical crises that we have in medicine today, but the ones we haven't even thought about yet? How will your theology of medicine help you to respond coherently to these challenges? So in this space of ethics, we should be helping each other as Christians think about and through the should questions, the why questions, because these conversations matter. So when I think of ethics, I love Peter um, Kreft's example that basically these three fundamental terms 
are good and right and ought. And Peter Kraft says that this can be thought of like a house. So the three terms are like doors in the house. The house is ethics, and you can enter the whole house through any one of these doors as all the terms are relative to each other, right? The terms are good, right, and ought. And again, as Christians, we actually have something radical and countercultural important to say into this house of ethics, and we need to and should be bringing our theology of uh, medicine to bear here. So let's start discerning the good that Kraft mentions in his ethics. How does one think about the good and how does that view of the good impact your practice of medicine? So some people start with Hippocrates. Hippocrates actually had a sense the vocation of medicine mattered immensely as well. He is seen here actually pushing some coins away with his foot. He was actually offered a bribe and he was like, no, like this isn't aligned with how I see the work of medicine to be. What did Hippocrates have to illuminate his vision of the good? He had natural revelation and common grace. He didn't have much, but actually what he did have, um, he came with, he had some pretty good conclusions. There's an appeal to the divine, as you know, at the beginning of the oath, where the oath is made with recognition of gods and goddesses. So right at the beginning of the Hippocratic Oath, we're reminded that we're not the sole arbitrators of health, wellness, disease, and healing. And in the oath, which I know is controversial, um, it says, I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I'm asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, I will not give a woman a pestery to cause an abortion, but impurity and according to divine law, I'll carry out my life and my art. And to whatever homes I go, I will enter them for the benefit of the sick, end quote. Okay, that sounds great, but what does for the benefit of the sick mean? This reminds me of the verse in Titus, where Paul says in Titus 2.14, but quote, Jesus Christ gave himself a people eager to do what is good, Titus 2.14. So how do we know what the good is? Well, sorry to disappoint. If you look at Titus 2.15, there is no list. There is no clarifying statement. So how are we supposed to know what to do? So I would argue that the vision of the good does not depend on the time, age, or country in which one reading this and one is reading Titus. We are shown the vision of the good according to the Lord in scripture, and we have the Holy Spirit to guide us in our decision makings. The events or the battles or the specific tasks at hand, of course, will differ depending on the age in which we live. But the underlying view of the good and the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit will be the same as it has been and will be until the Lord himself returns. So in the Hippocratic Oath, the key issue here is that the benefit of the sick that is mentioned has been interpreted in many various ways, just like the good that's mentioned in Titus 2. If we are not clear what those terms mean and let others define them for us, we aren't going to be able to be faithful. So we have the Hippocratic Oath, but we have so much more revelation than did Hippocrates. We have the revelation of God through his words that the Hippocrates didn't have. So we should be able to go deeper and our commitments to our work should be richer, brighter, and more glorious. What a difference it should make in our practice of medicine when we conform our vision to Christ in order to discern the good. So one question that needs to be answered by all of us who are in healthcare um, and answered is the question of what health even is. What is health? The ontology of health is super contested. But your answer to that question informs the answer, other question, which what is health care? So many of you have heard me tell this story before, but the, the, one of the coolest answers I ever got to this question was when I asked um, my medical students, and one of the students was an um, undergrad major um, uh, in anthropology at the University of Iowa. And her senior research project was actually asking um, farmers using qualitative research, like what they thought health was. And she said time and time again, the farmers would say something like, 
I don't consider myself healthy unless like the soil on my farm is healthy and the crops are healthy and my neighbors are healthy and the animals are healthy. And it was like the big, beautiful vision of what health is like that even went beyond individual self was like not limited to a biomedical space of health. It was just like really beautiful and actually gave this like sort of biblical picture of Shalom. Because again, thinking about what is health, what is healthcare, you know, um, I want to sort of remind us that like, you know, if we think of ourselves as medical education has a risk to do of just like, you know, technicians taking care of complex machines, your view of health is going to be extremely restricted. The question is like, is abortion healthcare? It depends on like what your view of health is, right? Is medical aid in dying or physician assisted suicide euthanasia healthcare? Canada now has actually a chair in medical aid in dying is directly aiming at the death of another patient, healthcare. So my theology of medicine is based on three big principles. I wanna sort of drill this down and sort of talk from my perspective, how I've tried to make sense of some of these things. First of all, as we've discussed, um, I see my patients as made in the image of God and that therefore my work and your work has inherent meaning. You weren't taking care of some diabetic or bag of blood and bones, right? Or clump of cells. You were taking care of someone made by God. Um, and made in his image with inviolable dignity and inherent worth. What type of work matters more than that? The image of God has the ability to transform medicine because without relying on the source of dignity, I believe we will inevitably rely on attributed dignity or extrinsic sources of dignity to place upon our patients to decide who has value and worth, uh, which I think is unacceptable. So the second principle in my theology of medicine is that matter matters because of the incarnation. We have a special dignity because we're human beings made in the image of God, and this dignity is intensified by God's assumption of human flesh in the incarnation. Bodies matter because Jesus Christ had a body, has a body, and central to our faith are bodies. We are not going to be resurrected spirits, but resurrected people in bodies. Jesus redeemed every phase of our lives that he passed through, including our physical selves, our bodies, and they form, they form matter. Alistair McIntyre, the great philosopher who's still living, um, once said that modern bioethics has become forgetful of the body. If the body is just bio stuff, right, or a tool that we use to operationalize our will, and what Charles Taylor and Carter Sneed um, talk about expressive individualism, that anything that is permissible can go. But one beautiful thing about having your ethics based on Christian theological principles is the richness. Science and biology by themselves don't have a proper cosmology or beginning or a telos, an end, they just are. And without a beginning, knowing where we've come from and an end to whom we belong and where we will go when we die, there can be no meaning. Without meaning, you end up with defaulting to what you see today as the reigning type of bioethics, utilitarian ethics, and one that's based solely on autonomy as your writing principle. As long as I can give consent and it doesn't hurt others, anything's permissible. If I can give consent, for example, to kill myself or have myself killed, what lesser things can I consent to in demand? For example, there are patients who want healthy limbs amputated for a variety of reasons. Is this ethical? Is this healthcare? When we have no beginning and no end, and therefore really no meaning, our bodies are just things or tools through which we operationalize our wills and just this bio stuff. We aren't living souls in this framework, but just molecules in motion. But if we do have a purpose, 
then only those choices that lead us towards fulfilling our purpose can be called good or ethical. If we have no purpose, then we can do anything we want. So a few years ago, I actually had the great privilege actually to be one of um, Notre Dame, Dame um, McGrath uh, Life Fellows. And there were people from different disciplines and we like worked on our projects. And I was like really interested in at that time of like exploring my understanding of human dignity. And Clemens Sedmak, who is any of you maybe know him, he's a, um, a theologian. Clemens asked me a question that was so thought provoking. And he said, do you think human dignity ends at death? And I was like, huh, I've never thought of that before. And he showed me this piece from the Washington Post. I actually think it's actually quite lovely. So this Post piece talks about a Tunisian gravedigger who walks the shores and um, bodies of people who um, drowned in the sea, who were trying to flee war-torn um, countries um, who died. Their bodies would wash up on shore and he would bury them. And so he was like interviewed and he was like, people are like, why are you, this is just matter. Like, why are you burying the bodies? And it was like a lot of work for him. This wasn't paid work. This wasn't something that he was hired to do. He just felt moved to bury them. And I don't believe that the man was a Christian man, but he had some kind of revelation that like something about these bodies was sacred or meaningful. And, and he gave voice to the idea that these people were part of throwaway culture. He said they weren't, actually their dignity wasn't recognized in their life as a, a migrant, but I'm gonna like recognize their dignity in a way by giving them a proper burial. It's actually just like a really lovely piece actually to chew on a bit. So let's bring us back to the humanities for a bit and turn to now the work of um, John Steinbeck. So in The Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck writes a story about a family of low resources during the Great Depression who are driven from their home because of drought and economic hardship. It was a time of great technological and industrial advancement, especially for farming. But Steinbeck reflects on the nature of man when he writes, Carbon is not a man, nor salt, nor water, nor calcium. He is all these, but he is much, much more. And the land is so much more than its analysis. That man who is more than his chemistry, that man who is more than his elements, knows the land that is more than its analysis. But the machine man driving a dead tractor and land he does not know and love understands only chemistry, and he is contemptuous of the land and of himself, end quote. Let's read that last line again. The machine man understands only chemistry, and he is contemptuous of the land and of himself. What if I substituted the word patient for the word land? He's contemptuous of the patient and of himself. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have heard about the crisis of physician burnout. The syndrome and its causes are super complex, but the result of burnout, one of them is depersonalization. When physicians start seeing the patient in front of them, the, way, the one they went into medicine for as a non-person, and they can become contemptuous of the patient. The patient becomes just some impediment for getting out of here. And the physician's feelings can become disordered about themselves as well. But how do we even know the true nature of man, the patient and ourselves without engaging the humanities? In the first day of medical school, as you know, students start learning a lot of biochemistry, a lot of pharmacology, a lot of histology, and that's great. The science is beautiful and there's so much science to know. But is this all medical education should be a memorization of facts? How does one make sense of what one is learning without a ground on which these facts can properly germinate? How does one learn the limits of the biomedical sciences if one is only immersed within said fields? As St. John Henry Newman writes, quote, there are men who embrace in their minds a vast multitude of ideas, 
but with little sensibility about their real relations towards each other, unquote. The risk of current medical education and the one that I fell into was that you can come out of medical school with a reductionistic, mechanistic view of people and ultimately of yourselves. One can easily end up seeing their patients as just a bag of blood and bones or viewing life as just mere molecules in motion. And to bring a little Wendell Berry in, I think of the Humanities Foundation as the proper soil upon which the seeds that are planted in the biomedical sciences can properly germinate and grow. And this lens of philosophy being the tool through which you can recognize and tear out the weeds that will grow up from time to time in your garden. My theology of medicine is also based on nonviolence. Um, it's my strong opinion that directly aiming at the death of a patient cannot and should not be part of medicine. So because of that, um, I'm a pro-life person. Um, I don't think euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide is part of, um, should be part of the vocation, the healing vocation of medicine. I'm also, after, you know, obviously anti-death penalty and that kind of thing. So finally, let's take a look at a story from the gospel accounts. In Mark, we are told that the disciples brought Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And the gospel writer writes, so he took the blind man by the hand and walked with him out of town. My entire theology of medicine could be drawn from this one sentence. There was so much work to do, people to heal. Can you imagine the demands that would have been placed on Jesus's time? But what did Jesus do? He took him by the hand, walked with him out of town. What am I to learn from this? The great physician, what the gospel writer was telling me. Well, first of all, Jesus being divine, most likely could have just healed him without touching him, getting to know him, or even being in the same physical location as the man, but he didn't. He took him by the hand and walked with him out of town. He got to know him as an individual. I wonder what they talked about. Why? Because individual people matter. They also comforted him and became connected with him. There's no detached professionalism here. Taking someone by the hand is actually quite personal. And he associated himself with someone who is disabled, maybe who many thought during the time had a disability because of personal or familial sin. Maybe someone nowadays, someone would advocate for allowing for physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, or who would be seen as someone less than because of the inability to produce and consume in the culture of consumerism that we often live in. But none of this happened. Jesus didn't advocate the person be euthanized. He did not get to know him. He didn't distance himself from the patient. He leaned in, got to know him, and showed him that he recognized and respected his dignity. As a patient once said, many doctors save lives, but you made me feel like my life was worth saving. So what I've taken away from my exploration of these topics, and what I would say is my first take-home point, is that the good and the benefit of the sick is dignity-affirming, nonviolent healthcare that seeks to restore to wholeness what is broken. So what are the risks of this? Well, as many of you know, um, I was elected to give the white coat ceremony keynote address at the University of Michigan Medical School this summer by the Gold Humanism Honor Society. And I was really excited about it. I went to med school at Michigan. It's actually a great honor um, professionally to give the talk. And I was like really excited about it. Within a couple of weeks of that becoming public, um, some students and faculty started a petition that was circulated around to get me removed as a speaker because of my pro-life views. Um, the medical school did not take my invitation away. And this is actually an excerpt of the email that actually Dean Rungay um, sent to the medical school faculty and students. 
And he said, our values speak about honoring the critical importance of diversity of personal thought ideas, which is a foundation to academic freedom and excellence. And we would never revoke, he said, a speaker because they had different personal ideas. And so um, I gave the talk and um, people walked out um, and this was recorded. And the walkout of the, the video of the walkout actually went viral um, and it was on a Sunday. And I woke up the next day and this is what happened. It was like all over the news. Actually, my husband like jostled. I was like a Monday with like the covers over my head, like in the fetal position. And my husband's like, Kristen, it's like, it's the top story on Fox News. And I'm like, what kind of hellscape is this? It's like a nightmare, you know? Um, and it was just like really stressful. It was a very, very stressful time. But also even thinking about that, I mean, you can imagine when you're being called, I mean, I had like, I had death threats. I had to have like a bodyguard at the wake with ceremony. And I'm like, my gosh, like, this is just really hard. And my character was very like assailed um, in the press. And I was being called all these terrible things. And your natural tendency is to want to defend yourself. And I got called to be on all these shows. And I was like, you know what? My theology of medicine coming to bear here too. I thought of all the times that Jesus was silent and how much space that makes for grace and mercy, which is so much needed in our current discourse around abortion. And so I didn't, I didn't respond to any of the media requests. Um, but I think thinking back on it now as I've had a little bit of space to decompress on it, you know, I wasn't even speaking about abortion at the white coat ceremony. I was just going to like come and welcome like the new medical students, the vocation of medicine, but like no one wanted I me. Mean, some people wanted me there, but like a big group of people didn't want me there. What does that say? My pro-life views flow out of my Christian identity. So I guess it's like a Christian pro-life or like, I just can't speak. Right. I guess I can speak about anything because I wasn't speaking about abortion, you know? And it just is like felt to me in part, um, like a targeted attack. And we probably wouldn't have stood up for any other identity-based attack as a faculty member in this way. I get if I had been talking about abortion, like for sure, that's like very controversial and people are like, da, da, da. but I wasn't, I was just welcoming students. So again, thinking about like the risks of bringing your faith to bear, um, you know, again, we have something beautiful to say, but these attempts obviously to have us be um, self-centered or to center us actually is, they're actually increasing actually or should be quite alarming for all of us that care about whatever you think about abortion, about academic freedom and um, the integrity of, university really actually too which was really interesting the npr piece actually was one of the most balanced piece in my favor actually talking about how i actually give a lot of talks actually about like racism and ableism and ageism within medicine and like have done work in the women's prison and like advocate for increased rural health opportunities for our trainees so i guess one thing to think about if you are interested obviously which i know many of you are and having a voice for life like to have a consistent life ethic where you're talking about these uh, issues as they span. It's interesting because like people like see these other topics and they're like, Collier seems like reasonable, but then like they had to reconcile their idea of like what they thought I was with this idea of like a pro-life woman who they think is inherently unreasonable and how to like reconcile that. So it's just, it's been very complicated. But I want to remind us that, and don't let anyone sort of tell you otherwise, medicine is not and cannot be values neutral. So if you are, for example, Roman Catholic and you're made to seem like, you know, there's a hospital ethics committee and like everyone's so reasonable and you are the like the e like unreasonable, awkward person and like you don't deserve a place at the table because of your religious views. I'd remind us of this view from Camosi, who tells us there is no view from nowhere. Everyone addressing foundational questions and ethics does so from the perspective of a normative tradition constituted by first principles whether you're um, claimed by these first principles by faith, intuition, or some other authority, whether, this is true, whether you're a utilitarian, a feminist, or a Roman Catholic. 
compute. So religion is not the sole awkward disruptor at the table of philosophy. Everyone has their faith claims. So for example, yeah, you have faith in the resurrection of bodies, but other people have faith in the um, hope of politics or faith in the unending um, promise of science. Those are all faith claims too, right? And especially if we think about the wonderful tenet of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, religious diversity, and those of us that have religious um, identities or spiritual identities, it'd be hypocrisy to just randomly or decide or targeted to sort of leave us to be excluded in, in, in academia especially when we know a lot of actually those of us in medicine came into medicine because of our religious and spiritual beliefs. So Robinson and her colleagues actually showed that like a lot of physicians believe in God and um, a lot of physicians actually came into medicine because of their religious commitments. We think of Paul Farmer, who had, was a Catholic man who had a preferential option for the poor and was driven by his work um, when he started Partners of Health. But then you come to me medicine and many of you know, you're made to feel like you have to check your faith at the door to be considered a legitimate scientist. Um, which is unacceptable. Um, we, our team wrote on this in JGIM last year that we know that one of the hallmarks of burnout is losing a sense of meaning in what you do. And for many people, thinking about the word spirituality being anchored largely in making meaning, many folks actually make meaning through their worldview of spirituality and religion. And to sort of make it seem like people have to drop that to be in school is actually like bad for them. Um, but also thinking about how we know that um, we wouldn't expect other people who have different identities to marginalize that. For example, if you're a mom, I'm a mom. I don't consider myself a mom just in the evening and a physician during the day. I'm actually a physician mom all the time. So for our trainees or colleagues who have a religious identity, who want to have um, an integrated personal professional identity. What does that mean actually to not just be maybe Catholic on Sunday and a physician during the week, but a Catholic physician all the time. Like we're not prescribing religion to anyone, but if you have this practice, can we again make space for this identity within the vocation of medicine? Is the tent large enough for all of us? Especially if we think we want actually a truly diverse um, vocation of people who also represent the, the uh, population um, in the way that representation matters. So to sort of finish up, I just want to give a couple of practical tips about thinking about how to, how to sort of maybe think about if you are thinking about um, translating your, your philosophy, your theology, medicine to one that maybe has um, an outward facing component to it when you talk about issues. Um, as I've learned, and this was taught to me by somebody else, but always speak about what you're for. Don't speak about what you're against, right? So I always talk about like, I'm actually for seeing the inviolable inherent dignity of both mom and baby. I'm actually for the expansion of human rights to our like most vulnerable. Um, to give you an example, maybe will help it stick with you a bit. You want to be pro-grandpa and not anti-donut. So if I were just to sort of pass a tray of donuts around to us, if we were together and I would pass the tray of donuts to you and I'd be like, you want a donut? And you go, no, I'm anti-donut. I'd be like, what kind of person is anti-donut? Like, who is this monster? You know, but instead, if you're like, don't want the donut and I ask you why and you say actually like last week I was with my grandpa my grandpa's turning 70 my grandpa really for his like 70th year wants to run a 5k with me and so we decided in the goal of like trying to train for the 5k we're gonna eat more healthy and so I'm doing this for my grandpa so you automatically become pro-grandpa right and not anti-donut which oftentimes like that's just gonna go over better when you're talking to a group of people. So always talk about what you're for. And again, what you're for is so beautiful. What you're for is actually so beautiful. So practically, like how do we even have time in the busyness and the endless cycle of innovation and right ideas and action? How do we make space? We have we have most, so much motion, but we don't know silence. We have so much knowledge, but we've lost wisdom. Like 
takes a lot of time. So how do we do this? Well, I would say um, as a Christian, obviously we need the Holy Spirit to guide our discernment and we have to make time and sort of to help you maybe think about remembering this part of it. Um, I want to again, take us back to the humanities, uh, to the play um, St. Joan was written by George Bernard Shaw. So George Bernard Shaw's play, St. Joan, uh, tells the story of Joan of Arc, um, who saved her country, all according to the instructions of the saints who gave her counsel. So in scene one of the play, Shaw has Joan say to Robert, who's the military leader, I hear voices telling me what to do. They come from God. But Robert objects, they come from your imagination. And Joan responds simply, of course. That is how the messages of God come to us. Later in the play, the archbishop asks Joan how she knows she's right about certain things. And she replies, I always know, my voices. And then the king, Charles VII, interrupts. Oh, your voices, your voices. Why don't the voices come to me? I am king, not you. And Joan responds, they do come to you, but you do not hear them. You have not sat in the field in the evening listening for them. When the anglist rings, you cross yourself and have done with it. But if you prayed with your heart and listened to the thrilling of the bells in the air after they stopped ringing, you would hear the voices as well as do I, end quote. So that's my next take home point is you need to regard prayer and silence as tools of your practice, just as you would regard doing new world questions or practicing your suturing skills will help in the purification of yourself and also in clarity of what you should be doing. But this has to be done with the right foundation, with the right support. And I'm, I'm just like, love the idea. I wish I had, I was, I was not a Christian when I was a medical student, but um, if I had been, or even had heard about something like TMC, um, it's such a lovely opportunity for you that are in it. Um, but this idea of support, and it leads me to sort of this next take on point is like, you can't do this alone. You shouldn't do it alone. You need the support of your um, community. As in Luke, we're told of the dangers of not being well prepared for this work. In Luke 14, it says, for which of you deciding to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether they have enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish, end quote. You want to have the foundation and support in order to be able to run the race and complete the work. So the Hippocratic Oath is only but a scaffold. It's a prototype of sorts, but pointed towards something, someone bigger. As Christians, we have the oath plus the word, the living word, truth himself, Jesus Christ. And I encourage you with the revelation that we have from the Lord to have a beatific vision of medicine practiced in Christ. Where the Hippocratic Oath falls short, we can go so much, much farther because we have direct revelation actually from God himself. Finally, I wanna leave you with two greats, one man and one woman. So. My good friend, Charlie Camosi tweeted this um, quote from Mother Cabrini in February where Mother Cabrini says, this is America, we are bold or we die. When I first saw this, I was like, this seems really dramatic. You know, it's like hyperbole, but actually now that I've been doing some um, of this uh, work and actually being more engaged with some pro-life things over the past few months, like I actually recognize that this is true. Actually, if we're not bold and we don't stand up for the full inherent and viable worth of all human beings, think of Michael Hickson right? Think of our prenatal brothers and sisters. Think about people who hear these stories in the north of Canada, people are not being offered complex home care, actually with disability, 
or even people who are um, otherwise marginalized, but like here, you could have medical aid in dying. Think about the boldness that's required actually to speak up for um, members of our human family. And then last, I'll leave with this quote from Newman. So I mentioned Newman earlier. So St. John Henry Newman spoke about how tough this is. He said, the world is a rough antagonist of spiritual truth, sometimes with a mailed hand, sometimes with pertinacious logic, sometimes with a storm of irresistible facts, it presses on against you. What it says is true, perhaps as far as it goes, but it's not the whole truth or the most important truth. These more important truths, which the natural heart admits in their substance, though it cannot maintain the being of God, the certainty of future retribution, the claims of the moral law, the reality of sin, the hope of supernatural help. Of these, the church is a matter of fact, the undaunted and the only defender. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen. I really appreciate your talk as just such a great example of displaying what you're for and then, uh, but also being very practical within that. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks. We have a number of really great questions and I wanna uh, address a couple of them uh, in the time that we have left. But first, I just wanna ask you a personal question that you're, you're welcome to deflect if you want to, but you mentioned that you were not a Christian in medical school, that you came to faith at some point like after your- yeah after you became a physician. And I guess I just wondered if you could talk for a minute about like how that happened. What drew you about Christian faith? Sure, no, that's a very, that's a very good question. Thank you for that question. Um, so, you know, I think um, I, I would probably would say I was raised as a secular humanist, really never like heard scripture, never attended church. It wasn't something that like I ever sort of grew up around. My parents weren't like anti-religious. We just were like, it wasn't sort of anything that they found important for us. and. So we'd never engaged with that. And then actually when I came to medical school and um, was a resident at Michigan Medicine, um, for many of you in medicine, you know how hard that is. And I started actually really sort of like becoming an anti-theist. I started really like wrestling with God at that point and being like, boy, like I'm seeing some pretty awful stuff. And I hear that there's like a God and I hear maybe the God is like good, but all, all powerful. It was like, but like all the suffering that I see, like, it doesn't make sense. So if there is a God and this is like what goes on, like, I want like nothing to do with this. I want nothing to do with it. And I really was struggling. Actually, my chief resident at the time had diagnosed with like a metastatic neuroendocrine tumor. We watched him die as a program and like, we couldn't even help him. It was like awful. And I was like having problems. Like, I understand why like doctors like drink too much. And like, we have a sometimes trouble with like addiction and like depression. Like it was a really tough time. And then during that time, my husband and I got married. We've been together 30 years since high school. And um, my husband actually was invited to church and by a friend of his and went to my husband's dad, actually, who was a physician, um, needed a heart transplant at that time. So my husband was like, my own dad's dying. We started to have children. So he had existential questions. He became a Christian. I was really upset with that. I'm like, I don't want to be married to a Christian. Like I didn't sign up for this. I mean, my husband would like, obviously was patient and I started having children. He would take the kids to church without me and I just would stay home. And then we had our fourth child, Isaac, and he was a little bit early, um, a little bit of failure to thrive. Um, I couldn't like breastfeed him. Like I did the other boys and I was like desperate for someone to help me. And here I was with like a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a baby. And I was just like crushed, you know? And I'm like on the internet, like in October, it was actually like, you know, 14 years ago, almost um, today. And I'm looking for a lactation consultant that could come to my house. The only lady came to the house, her name is Brandy. She sat with me and she really helped me and Isaac. 
we made it. And a year later, I emailed Brandy and I said, we made it to Isaac's one year birthday because of you. Thank you so much. And she said, well, I didn't tell you at the time, but I'm a pastor's wife. Do you want to come to my like ladies Bible study? And I was like, I don't want to come to your stinking Bible study. And I didn't say that to her, but I was like, oh, you know, my husband was like, you should go. Brandy helped you. And I went and I was 35 at the point, I think 36. Um, and it was the first time I heard scripture and I was actually really moved by it. And people are like, what did you hear exactly? And I was actually like, as a physician who had struggled with like seeing all my, the broken bodies and like what I saw, I was like, wait, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And wait, like every tear will be wiped away and there'll be a resurrection of like all that's broken into this new creation. And I was really moved also by just hearing about Jesus Christ, about this accompaniment, like I'll be with you to the end of the age. I was just was like so moved. And so started studying scripture, like doing what I can to like understand God's word. And then I had this moment in my car, maybe about a year after that, while I was driving and I was listening to this uh, Christian radio show I used to make fun of. And at the end, there was like a call to like repentance and I started crying. And I was like, I had that moment of like shame of like repentance. Like I was a nightmare. I had been living my life, like everything, like I earned and it was all a gift from God. And I was like, I want to be baptized. And so the boys and I were baptized about six years ago. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. One of our participants has a question that touches also on one thing that you mentioned at the end of your talk. Uh, uh, this person says, I have a question. In Canada, we're now debating euthanizing infants and children. Oh. We're seeing individuals who are not dying having their lives ended without any inquiry into the larger network of family and friends. It's causing great trauma in our society. How does medicine integrate inquiry with family members to create a greater understanding of who this person is, who the person is? Can Dr. Collier comment no, I, on this greater I mean, web of care? Thank you for that question. Um, there's so much to that question. So I know, I mean, I really was like unaware. Um, I think that's part of like also the siloing that we have as like US Americans as to what's going on in other parts of the world. But I had the privilege of being actually invited to Ottawa, Canada in June as part of um, Canadian Physicians for Life, and they actually had a symposium to help uh, with formation of actually young Canadian lawyers and physicians who are pro-life to like think about like um, being able to put people in strategic positions to be able to sort of fight for um, and speak into the culture of death and to fight it. And I heard like terrible stories of um, especially marginalized persons, um, you know, um, being sort of offered um, this treatment, um, right, which is very cost saving, right, to be able to sort of be um, sort of offered medical aid and dying and how just like routine it was actually in like hospital rounds. Um, and even like this, oh, I know, like the stories about infanticide and thinking about, yeah, I mean, this is like the moral slippery slope, again, not to be like that pro-life person, but like Mother Teresa said, like, if abortion is not wrong, then nothing's wrong, right? And it's like this sort of moral teeter-totter than many people say, like, if you, you know, have your argument that like, you know, abortion is fine because the human being is not a person. Well, an infant's not a person either then according to your definition because they don't have like agency, self-awareness. And like, you can see how this is bleeding into these other spaces. And I think, you know, getting to the nature of the question also about this reclaiming of community um, and how many people don't have the community to be able to um, feel bolstered by others when they themselves are maybe um, fragile or down or like don't have the wherewithal to navigate the system about the importance of the community. I do, I know Charlie Camosi talks about this in his book, Losing Our Dignity, about maybe the hope of a, of, a, of a resurgence of Christian community to be able to speak into these spaces where people otherwise have, have nowhere to go or to feel unbolstered or unloved as the church should be the home for people, um, especially at the margins. But I also think there has to be more, which I know a lot of groups are doing and it's so lovely, more public engagement actually to understand like 
the realities of where some of these things are going. Um, so Trisha Bruce, who many of you may know, she's a sociologist at Catholic University of America. She actually canvassed the country and asked people about their opinions on abortion. And her interview was routinely recalled back the next day by the public and say, hey, like, can I talk to you again? I actually was thinking about this all night. And her study found actually that most US adults actually haven't had opportunities to actually talk about abortion. And so people, I think there's a lot to sort of work on whatever domain that you're in. But yes, this is a tragedy. Yes, like our most vulnerable are being targeted. Like, yes, like this is like happening before our very eyes. And we need to think about creative solutions and not as Newman would say to be self-contained within medicine, but to think about our folks in faith-based organizations, policy, social anthropology, to be able to sort of reclaim a vision of life that like um, puts us back on the right track. No, I know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a significant tragedy. Thank you for whoever gave me that question. Thank you. And it just reminds me that in, in the U.S. reported data, like from Oregon, for example, the most common reasons for choosing assisted dying are uh, not wanting to be a burden and uh, fear of losing autonomy, which speaks to yes. that kind of culture of individualism and oh, totally. uh, that, that that is ours in the United States and North America. I, I'll conclude with one additional question. Um, uh, this, this attendee says, thank you so much for sharing your theology of medicine these stories with us, Dr. Collier, could you offer some advice to Christian clinicians who on the one hand want to be technically competent, even excellent clinicians, while at the same time not falling into the trap of idolizing medical technology? How do Christian clinicians hold these things in tension? Medical technology is good and medical technology is limited, particularly when we live in a society that either views people as matter in motion or alternatively view that, view that physical health as everything. And yes, we'll conclude so with this question. question. So I think too, I think of science and technology as like this big shiny boat and it's super glittery and it's like super alluring, but like the thing underneath, right? Which is the rudder, which I would call philosophy is actually like quite small. But I think of Aristotle and actually his boat of science and technology would have been like very small, right? It's not gonna get all the glitter of the sun. It's not all shiny and sparkly, but his actually rudder was actually very good, um, right? So we think of the ancients being like, actually the philosophy rudder is actually probably the most important part of the boat um, that sort of guides that ship. And we don't have to have this false binary of like, well, we can't be like good holistic healers, but also we can't be good, like sort of like scientific and technical like um, clinicians. Cause we actually are like medical scientists and like we don't want to be seen as anything less than actually clinically robust as well. Um, so to be able to have that training, but to keep that underlying view of the good or like that idea of like what this is for and to develop that rudder, right, a philosophy that maybe is informed by your, um, by your faith and to be able to do that um, in communion. And so, for example, I think about the like wonderful, either the faith communities that all of you are part of, but even coming into professional groups like um, the Converse of Medicine and Religion, which I think is a lovely space to be able to explore this more fully and to then go back and just into your pockets or coming to Notre Dame's a fall conference on culture and ethics, which I think is so lovely to be able to sort of think about this and then go back to your to your pockets because it can be very hard to like have these things um, and to not um, and I recognize that there's that tension there, but to actually think about these things actually is like not mutually exclusive and these things actually are complementary and like one actually is informed by the other and to have this integrated sense of a self that actually has these things viewed through your lens, right? Um, of, a, of a wonderful complementarian view of it and not something that maybe is at odds with one another, which is what the culture will often help, help make you feel like it is. Like you can't be a great scientist and be like a religious person because you're anti-science. And actually, no, actually I like have like this very informed view of like what I wanna do, but I can only do that through community and through a bolstering that can happen um, from these sources of strength that I have and to make time for that. Thanks for that question. 
That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Heller, for being a part of our community today and, yeah. for, and for being in conversation with us. We're really grateful uh, to you for being here. Thank you.